to 
Oh 
your goodness is running after it's running after me it's your goodness is running after it's running after me it's your goodness is running after it's running after me with my life laid down i'm surrendered now i give you is running after it's running after me cause all my life you have been faithful and all my life you have been so so good with every breath that I am able oh I will see the goodness of God. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and for your faithfulness. And today we just want to exalt you and worship you. And I just pray for Josh as he um, shares the message today that um, he'll hear from you what it is that you want to share with us and that um, you just give him freedom to share that and just bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, thanks, everyone, for being here. Uh, feels good to be back. Um, so uh, this morning is the first morning that we're going to be uh, start, we're starting a new series on the names of Jesus. And um, as, I was, as I was thinking about why we're doing this and, and what, what we're hoping to accomplish with this, um, I was thinking about uh, just any relationship that you have. As time goes on, um, you know, for those of us who have dated or are married, try to think back to that first first date, first couple dates that you had with your significant other, with your with your spouse, and um, and try to remember the excitement that you had at that time, and um, and why was it exciting? It was exciting because you didn't know the person, you didn't have any preconceived notions about who they were, or you didn't know how they were going to react in certain situations. And, um, you know, as time went on, you learned to know them better. And, uh, and you, you started to construct a model in your mind of who they were. And uh, you began to know, you know, in this situation, they're going to react this way. And, um, and in some ways, maybe that decreased the amount of, of tension that you had in your relationship because you kind of could anticipate what was going to set them off. But on the other hand, it, it lost a little bit of that, that drive that you had to, that excitement that you had when you first, first were getting to know them. And, um, and people are really com complex and it's really hard to interact with them on a, uh, with with their whole being, so I think that's why we construct this this image of of our spouse that kind of we we know what they're going to do, and we kind of reduce their complexity down to something that we can handle. And then every now and then they do something that we don't expect them to do, and when they do that, we have to we have to consider: are we going to update our model of them, or are we just going to ignore it and move on? And I think it's a lot easier a lot of times to just ignore it and move on and, and not necessarily update our model of, of who our spouse is. And the reason I'm saying all this is because I think that we also do that in our relationship with Christ. I think that when we first were getting to know him, we, it was exciting. We, we were learning all kinds of new things. Um, you know, our vision was expanding of, of what the world was, of how we should act in the world. And, um, but over time, 
we've taken the complexity of the real Christ and we've reduced it down to a model in our mind. And at least for me, that model starts to look more and more like myself and do things that are more and more like the things that I do. So the, the Christ that I interact with is not necessarily the Christ that's in the Bible or, or the real Christ. I think a lot of times the Christ that I interact with and that I worship is the Christ of the model that the graven image that I have created in my own mind that is has some aspects of the real Christ, but also there's some aspects that I've reduced reduced the complexity of just so I can 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 grapple with them, I guess, in, in some ways. And so what I what we want to do during this series is, is we want to look again at Christ and look at him in ways that maybe um, hopefully will, will challenge us and, and, and in ways that will expand our own knowledge of him. Um, I think it's very easy to, to take him for granted and, and to worship this graven image that we've made of him that, that looks and does things exactly like we do. But, um, but even though we're looking at familiar things and, looking, and talking about familiar themes, um, I would just encourage you that through this series that you really open your mind and, and ask Christ to reveal himself to you. Um, and we're go- going to be talking about the names of Christ, too. And names in the Bible are, are very significant a lot of the time. Um, what someone was named really determined a lot about their, um, a lot about them. Um, you know, one of the one of the most significant stories is the story of Jacob and Esau, and um, and as you know, you know they were given names at birth. Jacob was given the name Jacob, that meant deceiver, and that that characterized his life for a lot of, for a lot of his life. And Esau was given the name, um, you know, Esau, which means red, and and that and. As it turned out, that became sort of a, a, a curse on him, too. It, it meant that he was easily deceived by Jacob, that he was a fool, that, that he gave things up. And, um, and so in both cases, their names defined who they were. And, uh, you know, obviously we all know the story, but Jacob deceived Esau, deceived his father, was sent away. And then on the night that he was coming back into the land where God had said, this is going to be the land for you. He, um, he was worried about meeting Esau again. And in that moment, um, you know, he went off by himself and he encountered God. And in that moment of encountering God, um, he began, he, he wrestled with him. And, and this, in the wrestling match, it says in the Bible that they were, they were the two people wrestling were equally matched and and it didn't seem like one could win and and Jacob said I will not let go of you until you bless me and so at that moment God reached down and he touched Jacob's hip and he heard it but but he ended up blessing Jacob and he changed his name in that moment he changed his name from the deceiver to the one who wrestles with God and from then on the people who God has chosen and the people who he chooses to interact with were always known by that name, the name of, of the people that will wrestle with God. And so as we come, come to this, uh, this familiar story today, um, I, want, I want us all to be people that wrestle with God, that aren't willing to, to let go of him until he blesses us and gives us the blessing that, that, that he has decreed for us. Um, you know, I think often we, we feel that we, that we can't ask God for, for things, or, or, that, or that we already know him, and so that we don't need to wrestle with him. But, um, but God has said that the people, my people, are the people that wrestle with me, that deal with me, um, that that ask me for things that um, that won't let go of me until I bless them.
Um, all right. So, uh, so this morning, the first name that we're going to talk about is, is the name, the bread of life. And, uh, and so I want to turn to John 6 now. Um, and this is a very familiar passage. Um, but, but it's the passage uh, that, uh, that Jesus, when Jesus feeds the 5,000. And, um, you know, I, I picked the passage out, John, uh, but... This is, this is the one day in the life of Jesus that is mentioned in all the Gospels other than, other than the day that he died and his resurrection. So this was a very significant day. Even his birth wasn't mentioned in all the Gospels. But this day was one of the most significant days in Jesus' life. And in some of the other Gospels, it, it tells us that, that this came right after the death of John, John the Baptist. And so... Jesus is 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 feeling he's he's probably at a low point right now. This is when this is when his cousin, his friend, the man who baptized him had just been killed. And so Jesus goes off by himself to to a solitary place with his disciples and my feeling is that he probably wants to mourn the death of his friend. Um John doesn't really pick up on that, but some of the other gospels do. And so that, that's the background that, we're, um, that, that, that is occurring here when, when Jesus, when Jesus is, is faced with this. So, um, so we're just going to read through the passage, and, um, and you know, I'm going to pick out some things to, to focus on. And, and one of the things I want you to pay attention to as we read through this is the theme of sacrifice. Uh, the theme of sacrifice is all through this passage. So... Um, so as we read it, think about, think about the people who are making sacrifices, uh, the people who are unwilling to make sacrifices, what is being sacrificed, um, and, and what is not being sacrificed. All right, so starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, right there, we see something. We see that there's a political reality that, that, it, that John is reminding us of. You know, the Jews wanted to call this sea the Sea of Galilee, but the Romans were in charge, and they had changed the name to the Sea of Tiberias. The, Roman, the, the people of Israel are under political oppression, and, um, and that's present even here in this first verse. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So I'm not sure exactly when this was in the three years of Jesus' ministry, but John makes it a point to say that the Jewish Passover feast was near. So this was, this was coming up to the to the time when, when Jesus knew that in a year, you know, a year from now or two years from now, he's going to be, he's going to be crucified. So I think that also <laughs> weighed on his mind maybe um, uh, as, as he went through this day. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd uh, coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So I'm sure that Philip, he, he wasn't thinking at all about, about this question. I think he might have been thinking about, you know, what Jesus is going to say to these people, or, um, you know, how are we going to organize these people? I don't think until Jesus said something that Philip had on his mind, you know, I really think that we need to, to get some food for these people. Um, but Jesus, Jesus did, and and once he, once he set that out there, he set the the priorities for the day in a different way than what the disciples had maybe uh, planned for. Um, this was a remote place. It was out in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't near any any towns, um, and so. These people who were following Jesus had put themselves in a vulnerable place. You know, they hadn't brought food. They hadn't, they hadn't you know, they had put themselves in a place where they didn't have enough food and, and they didn't really have a way to get it. Um, so that, 
that vulnerability um, really comes into play, as we'll see later on. So Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So, um, so Philip's answering here with his own, uh, own human reasoning, his own human understanding of how things work. And this had been the way it was since the beginning, since Adam and Eve. Uh, we see right after the fall um, that, that one of the curses on Adam was that he was going to have to, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your bread all the days of your life. So, um, so up until this point, uh, bread was always something that required work. Uh, it, it, it requires sacrifice to make bread. You, you have to plant, you have to take some of your seed, you have, to, you have to decide not to eat it. You have to plant it in the ground. You have to wait. You have to then harvest the wheat. You have to grind it. You have to, you have to invest the time to make the bread. There's a lot that goes into making bread that, you know, now we don't think of it because we go to the grocery store and we just pull a loaf off the, off the shelf. But um, especially in this, in this day, it, it took a lot of effort to be able to make bread. Um, and so, and so Philip, Philip answers him that, uh, you know, bread comes from work. Bread requires patience. Uh, it's not something that you can just, just come up with on the spot. Um, but, uh, verse eight, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up. Here's a boy with five small, small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Um, and, you know, Andrew's a little bit skeptical about what we can do with this little loaf, but think about bread itself. You know, it's, it starts off as a single grain of wheat that we plant in the ground. And so it takes the sacrifice of that grain of wheat to, to grow the wheat plant. And I think in, in, you know, the reason that Jesus didn't just conjure conjure the bread out out of just thin air is that even in this case he wanted to make the point that there is a sacrifice this boy had to sacrifice his his lunch as the seed from which christ would multiply and um and and feed everyone so um so Someone had to invest the time to make these barley loaves that were then going to be multiplied by, by Christ. Jesus said, verse 10, Have the people sit down. There is plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Again, I think the fact that he points out, let nothing be wasted, I think often if we don't personally have, have had to make the sacrifice, it's easy to waste things. So, um, so the tendency of the people, if they, if they didn't have to if they didn't have to invest the time or effort into it, it's easy for, for them to, to just let the food be, be, you know, discarded. But verse 13, they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the people, pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Um, and so there, there was an abundance once they had gathered everything. I'm not sure what they did with that, but I'm sure that, I'm sure that if Jesus told them to go to the effort to make sure that none of it was wasted. I, I know that he would have had a plan with that food as well. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Um, I think his verse 15, you know, really gets to the heart of Jesus. He's, he's willing to help the people because he's willing to, make, get, to feed them with bread. But for whatever reason, he's not willing to be the leader over them. Um, 
at least in the way that they want him to be. Uh, and I, you know, I think that any other person who is in this situation, I think would would not have acted this way. Um, you know, G- Jesus came to 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 save save people from their sins, uh, and there was a lot of good that he wanted to do with his life. Uh, and I think it would have been very easy for him to to justify becoming king. You know, if you if John doesn't in in his gospel, he doesn't go into the temptation of, of Jesus in the way that that Matthew does. But this story is sort of a corollary to the temptation that Jesus went through because uh, when he was out in the desert, he was he was tempted by by Satan to make stones into bread. Um, and that wasn't the right time. Although, you know, this time he did make, he did, he did make bread. This was the right time to do it. Um, he, he did it to help others, not, not necessarily fulfill his own, his own hunger. Um, and one of the other, one of the other temptations that Satan offered to him was that he would give him the, the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus turned it down then, and he turned it down now. Um, so he he knew that this was not the way that God had for him to uh to fulfill his destiny. Um I'm going to skip the next section uh Jesus walking on the water. Uh that it's you know it's an important section. Uh, I'm just going to summarize it by saying that the disciples were also in a vulnerable point that night. Um they were out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, and Jesus met them in their vulnerability, and he, he took care of that. Uh, but then the next day, uh, the people who had all been fed, they, they were searching for Jesus, and they found him, and they, and they found him in a city. So now they're in a completely different place than they were the day before. You know, the day before, they were vulnerable. They were there to, to hear what Jesus had to say. They were there to experience his power. Now they're in the city. They have access to food. They're, they're not vulnerable anymore, um, and so their vulnerability has now turned to greed. And uh, picking up in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to inter eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus sees through, you know, they kind of, they don't really bring up the bread right away, but he, he can tell what they're really after. He tells, you know, he can see that they're really after him to, to be sort of a human bread dispenser for them. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? So Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Um, so so Jesus, Jesus, despite their duplicity in coming to him, he gives them a, a truthful answer and he tells them what they need to do. Uh, but, you know, they're still focused on this bread that they got. So, um, so you can see here in the next couple verses how they are trying to manipulate Jesus into doing what they want. Rather than uh, rather than really approaching him um, for learning to know know who he is and, and experience his power, they they really just want the bread. So this is how they try to manipulate him. So they asked him, "What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do?" Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread to eat. So, um, so again, they're, they're trying to manipulate Jesus. They're saying like, okay, we'll believe you if you show us the sign. And the sign that we want is that you give us bread. Uh, even though he had just done it the day before. So he had already shown them that he had the power to do it. Uh, but they wanted, they wanted him, they were feeling entitled. They, want, they didn't want to make any sacrifices. They just wanted him to, to give, give them bread. Um, and they were comparing themselves to a very different situation. Again, when, when God supplied manna in the desert, it was to a people that were vulnerable, that didn't have the ability to, to grow and plant. 
um, and, and make bread on their own. So, so God supplied it to make a point that he would supply their needs while they were, were, had placed themselves in obedience to him in a vulnerable position. These people that were coming to Jesus weren't in that same position. You know, they, they were in, they were in a, a city. They had the ability to buy bread their, themselves. They were just feeling entitled like, like Jesus needed to give them free bread. Um, and, so, uh, and so Jesus, Jesus you know, saw that and realized that that would not do them any good to, to give them bread at that moment. Uh, so Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. So again, they're, they're kind of missing the point here. So, um, so Jesus starts to, uh, starts to shift the conversation here. Uh, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those who, who the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at that last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Uh, so one thing that Jesus is highlighting in the, this uh, paragraph is the fact that he came from heaven. So he also made a sacrifice. For that, for that bread to be given to the people the day before, it required that Jesus give up his throne in heaven and come down to earth and be here in the flesh um, so that he was able to, to actually give, give the bread out to them. So, um, so in, in a real sense, it was that sacrifice that made that bread, uh, bread possible. Um, and the, the physical um, sensation that the Jews are feeling right now, I mean, I, I don't know whether they're actually physically hungry or not. They probably were the day before when, when he actually gave them the bread. Um, my guess is that probably now they're, they've, they're well fed. They just want to uh, collect some bread for for you know in the future, so they don't have to work to um, to to have bread. Um, I think they're really trying to get out of sacrifice. Really, is what they're trying to do in this in this area. Um, so uh, so Jesus does something. He 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 does something to try to help them. To ignore their hunger, and we're going to see that in the next uh, next passage here. So the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" Jesus said to them, "Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day." For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as, in the li- just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Now, I think, you know, we're safely removed 2,000 years from this passage, and we've had a lot of time to psychologize it and, uh, and, and you know, turn it into something safe. But imagine that you're there listening to this for the first time. I mean, this is disgusting, right? This is like, um, I mean, it's disgusting for us, but uh, to think of eating someone and drinking their blood, uh, but it's even more disgusting to the Jews because, you know, it was part of their dietary restrictions that they were not allowed to eat, eat meat that had blood in it. You know, way back when, when God gave, gave meat to Noah, he said, do not eat meat that has the lifeblood still in it. So, so this whole talk about drinking blood this, that, and eating flesh, that's something that the pagans do. Um, they're the ones who drink the blood. That's not something that good Jews would do. Um, eating the flesh is a, a little interesting too because uh, it, it harkens back to what they what they did in their sacrificial system. So I know when I was when I was young, I thought you know when they offered a sacrifice to God, they like would take a whole cow and burn it up. But that's that's not really what they did. It's almost like they had like a barbecue. Like they'd offer some of it, but part of the sacrifice was actually eating the meat of the sacrifice. That was how they, they would um, incorporate that, that sacrifice into, them, into themselves. Uh, and, and, and really, that was part of, part of the act of worship, was understanding that this animal that sacrifices is, is now giving us strength. Um, so, so why did Jesus kind of stoop to this kind of disgusting analogy I think it's because he really wanted to shock them out of their their hunger. Um, I don't know. I mean, as a surgeon, sometimes I have to do some really disgusting things, um, and you know, there's times where where you might be hungry, but if you have to encounter something that's really disgusting, all of a sudden you aren't hungry anymore. Or like if you go to the to the refrigerator and and you're hungry for, you know, some leftovers that you had in there, and you bring them out, and they're all moldy, all of a sudden you aren't hungry anymore. Um, And I think that's what Jesus was trying to do here. I think he was trying to actually disgust them. You know, that that word kind of clues you in, because it's like, gust means to be hungry, so he's trying to make them unhungry, uh, just so that they can actually engage their their reason and their their faculty of, of... thinking about things so that they know, so that they can see the spiritual truth. Um, I think, you know, when you think about why God created us with these physical uh, urges and demands, um, you know, it's, it's a hard question. Why did he create a world of scarcity? Um, it seems like it would be much better if he had created a world where we could just go out and and um, you know pick up pick up a loaf of bread off the ground. There's plenty of food to go around. No one had to go hungry. Um, and some of that is the fall, I think. Uh, some of that's the fall because we, you know in the Garden of Eden there was plenty of food to go around. Um, but I think even in the Garden of Eden, um, there still were were physical physical urges. And I think the reason that God created us with physical urges is, um, is to, so that we would have a way to direct our efforts and know, um, and know how, how he wants uh, the world to be constructed and how, how we should go about improving it. He put Adam and Eve there to improve, to work the land and to, um, and, and, and to be fruitful and multiply. And... Um, and so part of that, even before the flood, I think was, was taking, taking even the plenty that was there and making it even better. Um, and so I don't think that 
what Jesus is saying to these people is that their, their sense of hunger or their sense, their wish that things would be better, that they wouldn't require so much work to, to get the food, I don't think that he's necessarily condemning that. I think what he's condemning is the fact that they're unwilling to make a sacrifice in order to achieve that, and they're unwilling to submit themselves to God. Um, even, even in the story about manna, uh, for the people to collect the manna that was on the ground, they had to follow certain instructions that God gave them. They were to gather you know, a certain amount for each person in the house. They weren't to gather more than that, except on Saturday, you know, on Friday, when they were supposed to gather twice as much so they didn't have to gather any on Saturday. So, um, so part, part of what, part of accepting the blessings of God is submitting yourself to the instructions that God has given about how to carry out those, uh, how, how to maximize those blessings and um and how to uh, and the willingness to sacrifice um so uh just to finish up um so on hearing this many of of his disciples said this is a hard teaching who can accept it aware that his disciples were grumbling about it jesus said to them does this offend you then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before uh, and that's something I still haven't quite understood. Um, there's something that's offensive about Jesus being glorified and ascending. I haven't quite gotten my my mind around what that is. Uh, but there's something that is as offensive as Jesus telling us to eat his eat his flesh and drink his blood about him being glorified. Um, and so, so uh, Jesus is. is is, is just comparing his, his ascension to that. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Um. So, uh, so the things I want to leave with you out of this passage is the importance of sacrifice, uh, the importance of, of seeking God uh, and seeking his will uh, for our lives, and the willingness of God to meet us when we place ourselves while we're following him in, in a point of vulnerability. He, he will meet our needs at that point. Um, you know, if, if we don't put ourselves in that point of vulnerability, then maybe we won't see God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I just thank you that, um, that you are here with us this morning, that you have supplied uh, the bread of your presence um, here. And, um, and, and thank you that you, um, you have told us to ask you for bread. You, you said in the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer that we should ask for, for you for our daily bread. Um, help us also to be willing to make the sacrifices that you have called us to and, and to put ourselves in places of vulnerability uh, that we can hear from you and uh, carry out the work that you have. In your name, amen.